1: Good morning, Rutherford County. It's the Thomas Booker Show. Everybody can't wait till Thomas comes on. And, um, well, I have two things. I can wait till he buries me, but but as far as coming on the show, I just absolutely love Thomas. You have your family here this morning.
2: I do. Welcome to have, Glad to have my mom and dad here this morning.
1: Well, tell me about them. Tell uh, me about your mom and dad. Go, mom first. <laughs> She's the first one that had well, contact with you.
2: They kind of run side by side. They, uh, my dad's from West Tennessee originally. My mom's from Smyrna, and dad moved to Tennessee or to Smyrna in what 1956. 1956. And uh, they went to different elementary schools, but I guess met. Oh, went to the same elementary school. He went to John Coleman. You went to.
3: I went to John Coleman for the first two years. Now, let's back up on your mom for a second. Here we go. Now, her grandparents were, her grandfather was Rucker Rakes. Ah,
1: I remember him.
3: And then her uncle is Bud Rakes, Mm -hmm. Coach Rakes. He was my football coach in high school, along with David Young.
1: Oh, tell me about those two. Yeah. Yeah. Well we'll, 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 well, we'll get there. David sits there
3: and eats with us. We'll get there. All now. right,
1: a uh, you tell the story. I'm going to, I'm but going anyway, what, what I
3: want to say about Donna, you know, you hear all these people, they talk about they're from Smyrna and all this stuff. Well, Donna was born in Smyrna ah. because Goodall Clinic had, what, eight beds? And one of them was a maternity ward. <laughs> and her dad had came down from St. Louis, Michigan, which is up in the mid of the Mit. And you'd have to get a Michigander to show you that, Yeah. um, what the mid of the mid is. But anyway, her dad came down and uh, uh, married her mom, and uh, she was born there at Smyrna. So they actually went back to Michigan for a year, and he said, Why did I do that for? So they came back to Smyrna, and then he eventually retired as the postman. Uh But early on, he worked at Smyrna Chevrolet as a mechanic. Because her granddad ran a garage in St. Louis, Michigan for years and years. My folks, my dad, after World War II, had a furniture store and a spray painting business in Obine, Tennessee, which is up in the northwest corner right by Foot Lake, Mm -hmm. which was formed in the earthquake about the time of Davy Crockett when he was in West Tennessee. So anyway... My dad thought he had joined the Air Force Reserves and get some easy money by going to reserve meetings every month. And they ended up calling him back into the service. So in 1956, we had to move to Smyrna from Obine. And he sold his business and sold his spray painting business. And when we got here, Eisenhower had just become president about that time.
1: About 1960?
3: I don't No, 50s. Before. no 50s. I've been 52. 52. Yeah. 53, well, Truman had been president, and then Eisenhower, I think. 53.
2: 53. 53.
3: 53. Anyway, so we lived on 130 D Long Street right there by John Coleman. And uh, he told me before he died, he said, we hadn't been here in two months. They came to me one day and said, well, Eisenhower is not going to expand the Air Force. He's going to shrink it, so you can go back home now. And he said, well, I've already sold my house, my business. We're here, so I guess we're here for the long term. And my mom, she ran Ideal Beauty Shop in Smyrna for, I guess, 30, 35 years. Long time. Which is next was next to the old theater building.
2: On Front Street.
3: On Front Street. And, uh, anyway, my dad, after the military, he, uh, sold uh, he was a, a, a representative for the warehouse up in nashville that sold gibson appliances all through middle tennessee so he traveled all the middle tennessee every day and that's what he did till he retired and that's how we got here
1: well your history is a great history talking about smyrna because not many people can relate the things that that you have locked up in that
3: brain here. well we never intended to leave. We've been in Ohio since 1981, and that's where Thomas was born, even though he thought he should have been brought down Worst to Tennessee. mistake ever. He, he thought his mom should have got— Had Summit would have never
1: let you be born in he, Ohio. He,
3: he thought his mom should get in the car and drive down to Tennessee so he could be born on Tennessee soil. Yeah. Now, uh, but I that am, just didn't I happen. I
2: am a son a Confederate veteran, so
3: yeah.
2: it doesn't get much closer than that.
3: And the way, he qualifies, the way he qualifies for that is my grandfather's grandfather was in the Tennessee Calvary. And somewhere in the Tennessee archives is his enlistment papers and that of his horse. Mm-hmm. And it says on there that when he leaves the Confederate Army, he will get a horse with him because he brought a horse when he came in. Yeah. But he was captured at Vicksburg after the surrender of Vicksburg. Fort Donaldson. Had, he was captured first there, then he went to a prison camp in Indianapolis.
1: Quit arguing with your daddy. I'm not arguing.
3: And he went, and I know this from my cousin who researched all this. Mm-hmm. And then he went to a prison camp in Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. Then they had a prisoner exchange, and he wasn't supposed to rejoin, but he did. He ended up down at Vicksburg. And at that point, they said, now you need to go home, and you don't get a horse. So he walked back to Columbia, Tennessee, and that's where he's buried today.
1: Yep. Wow. I so. hope you've never shared any of this you
3: with
2: never the asked. rest of it. I thought you just like Mickey Mantle.
1: I, l- I love baseball. There's no <laughs> doubt about that. And I love Mickey Mantle. But you've got that brain locked in on baseball. Yeah. And and you won't relate any of the important things that's happened as far as the history of this area. you got to come to my house. I have it all on display.
2: What little bit my wife lets me share.
3: So well, so we you call so, you call you, well, call, you call. how long
1: ago was it? Dude? Oh, it was two three or three months. shows ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. four mm-hmm. months ago. Yeah, I enjoyed that conversation
3: yeah. very much. But we left in '81. But they Emer-
1: also graduated I, high school together. Well, we did,
3: and we uh class of
2: '71. Uh, class of
3: '71. As a matter of fact, I'll say this: We just had another classmate die, Mike Gasser. Mm-hmm. Um, we've lost two this year. Earlier was Jay Gill, Harry's brother. Oh. And Jay and I started first grade together at uh, John Coleman. Yeah. Back in 1959. But anyway.
2: Two great people.
3: The way we got to Ohio, that's what I wanted to get to, is I worked at Emory Worldwide out at Smyrna Airport. And one day we were told, well, you're either going to transfer to Dayton, Ohio, or sorry, you don't have a job anymore. So we thought we were going there for about three months, maybe a year. And... Since then, we've been there. <laughs> when we left, they were breaking ground for uh, Nissan.
1: Yeah.
3: And I can tell you something about that, too.
1: I was out there that day.
3: And, uh, well, now that's a good story. It is. Um, but anyway, when we left Smyrna, it was about 4,000 people.
2: And now it's, what, 55,000? Yeah, it's around yeah. Well, it's close 60. To
1: 60. I uh, had uh, Mary Esther and and, and Brian on and uh, got a uh, a complete review of what's happening in Smyrna. Smyrna, I think, is a great town. I really do. And a lot of it came from the people who moved in that were stationed over
3: at Seward at at the time. Yeah. So that day you're talking about, Ed Lowe, that owns Stones River Flying Service, called me up and said, hey, would you take your Bronco, and there's a crew flying in from CBS News, and drive them around Smyrna, so they can shoot scenes of Smyrna out of the back of your Bronco. So I did. And then we went over to the town center, which is the old officer's club, and we went in the lobby, and there was all the news teams from ABC, NBC, WSM, WLAC, WSIX, you know, whatever, uh, WGN, you know, anybody that had anything to news, they were packed in the lobby, and they had the big lights. And Ken Pinkerton, who ran the Smyrna Western Auto for years, and we used to have to show him we had money before he had let us in the store to buy some of those wizard deals. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he was at the door, and what he was supposed to do is when Mayor Ridley came up, he was supposed to give the news people a couple of minutes' notice so they could turn the lights on and get them full bright. So Ken's at the door, and everybody's anticipating, because Mr. Ridley's going to announce whether Smyrna got it or didn't get Nissan, and Ken's peeking out the door, and pretty soon he goes, here he comes, here he comes, Mr. Ridley's coming up the steps. And the lights go bright, and the door opens, and all the news people rush right up to him. I said, did Smyrna get the this on? Did Smyrna get this on? You know, they're all peltering. He goes, how the hell should I know? I'm Knox. You need to ask Sam. He's the mayor. <laughs> <laughs> and Ken's face turned red. And he was so embarrassed. But we had known Sam and Knox our whole life. And if they were together, yes, we knew which one was Sam and Knox. Yeah. But if you caught them separate, I mean, they were really that close in appearance. So,
1: hearing aid was the giveaway.
3: Well, that came later. Yeah. But, yeah
1: but they were they were so different in in the things that uh, Knox never did like the limelight but Sam did.
3: I think that's right. Yeah. yeah.
1: And and uh, he he had a lot of leadership positions here in the county Knox did, but that that wasn't his cup of tea. I mean Sam it's amazing when everybody thought Seward Air Force base was going to die and Smyrna was going to die with it. Yeah. And then all of a sudden I think that Sam did such a tremendous job working with everybody and getting that taken care of. He, he was really a, a master at, at dealing with those things.
3: Yep. My uh, family, we, we moved in, like I said, 130 D. Long Street. And then about 62, we moved to Smyrna and we bought a house in Riverview subdivision on Holston Drive. And I was telling Thomas last night, my dad paid, I think, somewhere between $15,000 and $18,000 for that house. Of course, his GI bill and the whole bit. Um, And then he tells me the prices that these houses are going for these days. Back when... It was announced that Smyrna was going or Seward was going to be closed. And I remember hearing it on the radio. My mom and two sisters, Reggie and Marsha, and we were all driving back from Nashville, and it came on the radio that Seward had been announced that we were being closed. And one person in Smyrna, and you know, when it was doom and gloom, Smyrna's going to fade away, Carl Montgomery, who had <laughs> retired out of the Air Force and was a realtor, he went, now it's going to go the other way. And he started buying these houses that people had bought for fifteen, eighteen thousand had GI Bill, and I think all he did was pick up their GI Bill payment, which was a wow. hundred or so dollars a month. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but Smyrna didn't. And
2: what with, year did they announced they were going to close at sixty-seven? Maybe
3: it was about sixty-seven, and about the same time. So Lyndon Johnson, who I always said he had a thing about al gore senior and al gore senior didn't necessarily support him on vietnam and a few other things that he was trying to do as president so he took away our base and gave it to arkansas because and i forget who the guy was in arkansas at the time he was very close with him and he's the guy that was caught in the tidal basin with a stripper named fanny something other if you remember that yeah Anyway, so Seward... I remember Johnson very well. Seward transferred to, uh, to uh, Little Rock, and instead, Smyrna got the lake. So in hindsight, Smyrna probably got more out of the trade, uh, losing the base, but got a very nice lake that really supports all the growth that's around here.
2: So, so they made the lake while the base was still there, right? Lake was 68, maybe?
3: When we were kids in the springtime when it'd be a big thunderstorm. All the kids that lived on the other side of Fate Sanders, on the other side of Stones River, they would make an announcement, the bus is running early before the road closes. You remember that, Donna? She's actually sitting here looking at us. Anyway, they <laughs> would get the out of- the
1: only one here worth looking yeah. at, I can tell you <laughs> So,
3: that. So, Stones River was very uh, likely to flood in the spring. And the kids would get to go home about 12 o'clock, and they may not come back the next day until the river went back down. So really, Prissy Priest is a flood control lake. Um, and you really see more of the old river channel when the, they take the lake down in the wintertime. But, they uh, did
1: a terrible job not cleaning that out. It is, it is the most dangerous lake in the state, I, I really believe.
3: Oh, you used to get out of the channel. It gets shallow really quick. Yeah.
2: Wasn't one of the first people killed in the lake your classmate?
3: Well, that was Sam McDowell, and he was a year under us.
2: I like the name, Sam McDowell.
3: And it was in the springtime, I think, about the time we were getting out of school, and a bunch of them were out there swimming. And Sam dove in the water and never came up Mm. about where the Fate Sanders Bridge is. That's the way I remember Remember that. Remember
1: what year that was?
3: That would have been probably 1970. But Mr. Mac Williams, he had two pictures of former students hanging in the lobby of Smart High School. One was Steve Roberts, who worked at the Omni Hut for Mr. Walls, Major Walls. Yeah. And the guy that he worked with got a new Honda 50. And Steve's parents lived over on Bel Air in Metal, on Metalbrook Homes, Metalbrook subdivision. And they'd close the Omni Hut, and Steve gets on his back of uh, this guy's motorcycle, and I can't remember his name at the moment. And as they pull out on the highway, a car was coming from Murfreesboro, I think and ran over him and the boy he lived with some injuries but steve was dead well anyway mr mack had steve's picture hanging in that school from then on and probably until smyrna on hazelwood closed and then later when sam mcdowell died um he he put his picture up there on the other side
2: pretty neat they would do that Yeah. yeah i don't think high schools this day and age would uh
1: I would hope they would. I would hope they would, but Mr. Mack was a tough guy. I well, mean, he was very well known.
3: I'll tell you a story about Mr. Mack. Uh, I'm not going to mention any names, but if he's listening, he knows what I'm talking about. Over the course of our junior or senior year, he had learned how to smoke. And now he's a smoker. i got to have my smoke break at lunchtime. So he goes out behind the school, and he's underneath the stadium and he's quickly smoking two or three cigarettes, you know, so I can last for the afternoon. And he's facing into the stadium, and as he takes in a big puff, because he's fast smoking now so he's really sucking it in, he gets tapped on the shoulder, and he turns around it's Mr. Mac, and Mr. Mac is about two inches from his face. Mm-hmm. And Mr. Mac just looks at him, <laughs> and then finally he goes, I can touch your water off any day of the week. You got me, boy. <laughs> of course, he's sitting there dying because he can't let the smoke out because if he does, it will go in Mr. Mac's face. <laughs> so Mr. Mac turns and walks away, and that's the last day he smoked at school. <laughs>
1: Ooh. That's good. Yeah. But, but he had an impact on all he of He had
3: an impact, but the number two guy that if you didn't go see Mr. Mac, you went and saw her uncle, Coach Rakes. And I think,
1: Was he real tough during those early days?
3: I will tell you this. He's grabbed my face guard and shook my face many times at football practice. Yeah. And we were all in fear of Coach Rakes. Yeah. And then I found out about Uncle Bud. <laughs> <laughs> Uncle Bud is not Coach Rakes. <laughs> Uncle Bud, his three nieces and two daughters have their fingers wrapped around him. But no, he's a great guy. He's a great. I
1: saw guy. him about. I guess it's been about three months ago, and and, and of course his wife has passed on, and uh, he was with one of his schoolmates, the, a, a young lady, he, uh, his age, and and I swear she looked like she wasn't over 40 years old. Miss Jerry. Yeah. How does those things happen? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. But but he he looked like he was doing fine, and he, he he's pretty happy.
3: I think. Of course, he cared for Aunt Margaret yes. up to the very end Yeah, uh, when he couldn't care for her. Actually, we think that's why he retired, because it got to a point to where he had to be home with her every day.
2: That's what he told me.
3: And he kept her at home. He kept her at home for
2: probably 10 years. until
3: probably longer than he should have, because Donna and, and, and Vicki and Kimber and Carmen and Judy all said, you know, they were concerned about his health.
1: It takes its toll on you.
3: And, uh, but he did her hair and he did her makeup and all the things that she needed. But finally he had to take her to the, to the, uh, where, what was the, board did she, she go? She was
2: here for a while at Adam's place. And yeah. I think she went to Waterford and Smyrna.
3: But then once she was there, they bought a couch and put it in her room. And,
2: and he was there every and day. And they would
3: go every day and sit there and eat and. Watch a movie and whatever. So, yeah.
1: That's a spo- real special relationship. Yeah. Between spouses when when that particular disease he, hits.
3: Yeah.
2: He and my grandmother moved to Smyrna in what 1940
1: or 41. Bumpy. Let, let, let's take a quick break and then oh. we, then we'll. Let, is it already
2: let, time for a break?
1: Yes, it is. Lord. Why
2: move into a new house and and leave a home that you already have memories with?
4: Farrah Construction had already done the bathroom. Then we decided to move a wall or two and redo the playroom. If you can dream it, we can turn it into reality. And they did. The best investment in enjoyment that we ever made.
1: We're family
2: here at Farrah Construction. We care about you. This is Ron Hall with Farrah Construction.
4: Call 615-893-6120. Adams Place Retirement Community is a part of National Healthcare Corporation. In 1971, the founder, Dr. Carl Adams, had a vision to provide higher quality health care for seniors. His dream was to create a campus concept that offered in-house services for residents as they age with different needs. Call 615-904-7100 and schedule a tour. Are you looking for a different kind of bank? Open your eyes to a credit union. At Heritage South Community Credit Union, we help hard-working Americans achieve their financial goals faster. And because we're owned by our members, you get a piece of the pie. Visit our website, HeritageSouth.org, to open your first account and see how we help when others won't. Insured by NCUA. Hey gentlemen, it's Scott. Make your health a priority with a quick and easy health assessment at Low Teef Center. You know, they exclusively specialize in men's wellness and they follow strict medical guidelines for your health and safety. And they are one of the leading men's medical providers in the entire country. Low T Center has literally reinvented the doctor's visit, making it quick and easy to get all your levels checked, not just your testosterone. It all starts with an annual wellness exam where they do a comprehensive health assessment so you know all of the numbers important to your health. If you've been feeling tired, grumpy, notice weight gain and loss of muscle mass, these could all be signs of low testosterone levels, low thyroid, or even sleep apnea. Low T Center can determine the cause and help. And now they offer monitored self-inject at-home testosterone treatments for 135 a month self-pay or covered by most health insurance book your annual wellness exam today go to lowtcenter.com low t center reinventing men's health care
0: now an update from the wgnsradio.com news center
5: i'm ron jordan many parents accidentally install their child's car seats incorrectly which can be a fatal mistake Nationwide, 8 out of 10 child safety seats are installed improperly. A special buckle-up borough child safety seat checkpoint will change all that on Friday in the front parking lot of the Murfreesboro Police Department headquarters building. The event will take place Friday from 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. A man convicted for his role in the 1982 murder of Lynn Orand has filed an appeal after his motion to correct what he called an illegal sentence was denied. Gary Bush argued the life sentence he received after being convicted for the first-degree murder in 2008 should not have occurred. Bush noted that the murder took place 26 years prior to being convicted, and the court should have followed the 1982 Criminal Sentencing Act rather than the 1989 Criminal Sentencing Reform Act. That appeal was denied, and the courts said he would have received the same life sentence no matter what rules were followed. Healthy Tennessee, a nonprofit organization founded by Veteran orthopedic trauma surgeon Dr. Manny Setti, is hosting a free health fair on Saturday, July 17th from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. at the Patterson Park Community Center on Mercury Boulevard. Feed America First will also be on hand to provide free food distribution, and local health-focused companies and organizations will provide vendor booths at the fair. And a new poll says about two-thirds of Americans believe in space aliens. The Pew Research Center polled over 10,000 U.S. adults just ahead of the June release of a congressional UFO report. A poll found over half of Americans believe the UFOs in the military report are likely evidence of intelligent life on other planets. News on demand 24-7 at WGNSRadio.com. I'm Ron Jordan reporting. News updates around the clock, when it breaks, and on demand at
0: WGNSRadio.com. We are News Radio WGNS. Summer is the season of fun. Here's some tips to make sure you enjoy yours. Tip number one, lawn darts still aren't a good idea.
3: Ouch, these things should be illegal.
0: I think they are. Tip number two, you're never too old to chase the ice cream truck.
4: Hey, slow down. I just want a dreamsicle.
0: And tip number three, if you're looking for some real summer fun, play the Summer Instant Games, only from the Tennessee Lottery. Game-changing fun. Please play responsibly. John here, reporting from the Tennessee Lottery Summer Games. Today we have Erica from Knoxville and Janet from Memphis, a dynamic duo going for the green in synchronized scratching. And they're off. The scratching has just begun in, oh boy, oh boy, is this a feat of athleticism. Look at the dexterity of their fingers and the ferocious tenacity of this team and the vice grip on that coin. They're going all the way. They've just won the green. Do you have what it takes to be a big winner this summer? Play the Summer Instant Games with chances to win up to $500,000 only from the Tennessee Lottery. Game-changing fun. Please play responsibly. Listen
4: live to WGNS Radio on our website, and Alexa, or Google devices. Search WGNS Radio for on-demand podcasts in iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Plus, we have direct links to podcasts at WGNSRadio.com. Good neighbor weather. We'll see a few scattered showers and thunderstorms at times this afternoon with cloudy skies. High in the upper 80s. Winds out of the south around 5 to 10 miles per hour. I'm meteorologist Jennifer Wojcicki on News Radio WGNS. Currently, it's 70.
0: FM 100.5 and 101.9, AM 1450, and streaming at WGNSradio.com.
1: And welcome back with David Booker and Donna Booker, and uh, somebody walked in with them. So, where are we now, Dave? Well,
3: let me make a correction. We had a call in during the break. I said Sam McDowell. Sam McDowell was in our class. His brother younger than us maybe a year or two and uh david, david McDowell is who jumped jumped in percy priest and yeah. uh, was
2: one of the first to pass
3: one of the first people that we recall drowning in the lake and that was around fate Sanders.
1: yeah and, and you went to school at, at what point here all the way through in smyrna or how did that work
3: my mom and dad moved to riverview around 62 and which put us into the Smyrna school, so I started third grade with Miss Sanders, mm-hmm. and we were in what was called the barracks. And the barracks was actually a base, for a building from the base that they moved to the Old Smyrna Elementary, the Rock School, the famous Rock School, there, close to the old gymnasium, which was even when we were in school and we had new Thurman Francis Junior High, you know, which was pretty nice. Mm-hmm. I remember the Walter Hill gym being almost identical to the old Smyrna gym, which had cedar posts that held up the bleachers. Wow. Um,
2: Turn back the clock.
3: Yeah. But that was...
1: Yeah.
3: uh, And Donna was in third grade. Who were you? Thelma Davis. Davis. And uh, whose daughter just recently died. And then, so we were in school together all through uh, elementary, junior high, and high school. She went to MTSU. I went to Belmont College, which is now a university. We both graduated. She went in the banking business. I went to Mississippi and flew airplanes for three years, spring cotton crops. You were a crop duster. I was a crop duster. As a matter of fact, we just got back from Mississippi, and we have a flying field down there where we still see my old boss. And we have some old airplanes, and we just spend two, three weeks flying those old airplanes.
1: I thought you were smart. Did you realize that that was the most dangerous occupation in the country? No,
3: that, 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 that is a misnomer. Oh. I left I left that business to go to the most dangerous, which was midnight cargo between Smyrna, Tennessee, and Detroit, Michigan. Most of the time, the airplanes would haul Holly carburetors from Bowling Green to Detroit's Metro. No, not Metro. Detroit City Airport and back.
1: What aircraft was that?
3: It was a Beach 18. Uh, The airplane we had, I think, was built in 1948 or 1952. Mm -hmm. So I went from a very controlled environment of spraying crops to out in the middle of the night by yourself. Or with somebody else with no weather radar. So. Let me
1: tell you something, Mr. Booker. What's that? I saw a bunch of crop dusters when I was growing up here. And some of those areas that they were flying low in, uh, if they made a mistake, you can just count them just good. Well, bad.
3: Yeah. But the airplane flies exactly the same one foot off the ground as it does ten thousand feet off the ground. Yeah, but actually it might even fly. El- you
1: got more. Elements you got more involved. things
3: to watch out for. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Did yeah. you enjoy it? Yeah, very much so. Um, that's why we go back to Mississippi. We're at the same little town, Sunflower, where um, I spent three years. Sunflower, Mississippi. Sunflower, in the middle of Sunflower County. Mm-hmm. Which, which is where Aretha Franklin's you father fly. You fly was born. Him. Wow. And the most famous person to come out of Sunflower County and is buried there today is B.B. King. B.B. King. Oh, wow. And when I, lived there, when I lived there, some of the older people would talk about this little kid that sat on the court, uh, house steps with a guitar and a coffee can. And they would put nickels and dimes and quarters in there, and he would play songs. And that was B.B. King. Wow. So he traveled the whole world, knew people all over. But when he died, where did he go back to? Sunflower County, and he's buried in Indianola, right beside his museum. And Don and I went there last year, and I thought, oh, we'll go in there, and it'll take about 30 minutes to look at this. No, it takes a good three, four hours. There is a bunch of memorabilia on the walls. Mm. And uh, it's a very interesting story.
1: Yeah. Isn't it strange how your home roots, they're a magnet to you. Aren't they're a magnet got to you.
3: This guy went and traveled the whole world. The other neat thing about B.B. King that they talk about in the museum is that wherever he was, however big the concert, when it was over, whoever wanted to come back and see you get his autograph, he, they were welcome to come back. He loved the people. Yeah. And uh,
2: They aren't like that anymore.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm or, sure there's still some, but not like not. The world today has changed, yeah. a- a- and and the things that were important to you back in those days, they don't seem to be as important right now. And and Donna, uh, your mom had told me, and, and I agree, the '50s were the golden years of this country because we had already gone past. Uh, uh, World War II and and uh, all the things that happened in the 30s that were so negative, but in the 1950s, people really had something special. Now, I'm not sure that we even realized it during that time, but we really did. People were just all close together, and and uh, our friendships lasted forever. The the mm-hmm. the families. I mean, they were at the dinner table all the time, and and if you had a large family like mine, we would sit around the table on Sunday and just uh, Donna, you may not like this, but uh, the men would eat first at the table, and the ladies would would bring everything to them, and then they had a place for the children, and then the women would clean up and and uh, no, enjoy their conversation it. together. <laughs> I mean, it, it was just different.
2: Tell him about your guy that trained you to fly and the qualification.
3: Which which story and is sunflower. that? It's sunflower. Him it was
2: at your retirement party, that wasn't retirement party.
3: Oh, Johnny Dore in Marigold, listen, Mississippi.
2: Listen to this. This was fascinating. I never
1: knew this. It's but, all fascinating well, to me. Well,
3: we want to talk about that, and then we'll also more. talk a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about Mickey Mantle. Okay. Yes. And we got to get that piece into the show. So,
1: of course, dude. Um, you're flying. So anyway, Johnny
3: Dore was old hardcore. Uh, you hated flying with him.
2: Tell him who he was. And...
3: He was an instructor during World War II and then came out of that, and he ran an agriculture spraying business for many, many years. And by the time I got there, he couldn't really talk anymore. He couldn't walk. He couldn't see out of one eye and was blind in the other. Mm. And uh, But he still could fly.
2: To get your certification for...
3: To get my certification in commercial pilots. So, Johnny... At one point, kicked a guy out of school. If Johnny just thought you weren't going to make it, he would just say, you know, you need, you need to hit the road. And he did that to this one guy, and this guy uh, went to Jackson, Mississippi, turned him in the F.A. and said, you got a guy that can't talk, walk, speak, see, and he's up there signing off students. So the F.A. looked into it. Sure enough, that was true. So they called him and told him, you know, you've just lost your medical. There's no way you could pass that.
2: And this is what year?
3: 1976? This is around, it's about the 1970s, yeah. So anyway, uh, you can do a thing called a demonstrated ability. So even though I don't pass the medical, if I can demonstrate that I can fly the airplane, I can still do it. So they said, we'll come and if you'll come to Jackson and we'll put you in an airplane and you can take a demonstrated ability. And he goes, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. And he tells his wife, uh, Miss Dore, and she hangs up on the FAA. So she makes a phone call. The next day they call up and they say, we will bring an airplane to you in Marigold and put you in it and give you a demonstrated ability. And Johnny looks at Dot and says, no, I'm not going to do that. And she hangs up and she makes a phone call. The next day they call and they say, when can we come up there And we will fly in your airplane, which is a 1940-something Boeing Stearman Open Cockpit, and we will give you a demonstrated ability." And he said, okay. Well, can we come tomorrow? And he said, no. Got to come a month. (laughs) And so she hangs up again. She makes a phone call. They said, what day do you want us up there in one month? (laughs) So then he went out and told Robert, who mowed the runway, which is all grass, he said, quit mowing the runway, let it all grow up. So that way you couldn't distinguish a runway from the regular grass. So it was all one big Mm field. A month later, the FAA guy shows up, and the students have to get Johnny out of his golf cart, put him up on the wing, set him over in the cockpit, take one hand, put it on the control stick, one hand on the throttle, put one foot on the rudder pedal, the other foot on the rudder pedal, and this FAA guy is sitting there looking at him going, how in the world did I get involved in this? Anyway, they take off, and they fly for a little bit. Johnny aims at this big pecan tree. That's how he sees to take off, and he takes off, he goes flying. They come back around, he just does the reverse. He comes over the road, aims at the big pecan tree, pulls the stick back, and boom. And the FAA guy signs him off so this guy can fly better than I can. And I know it's a true story because I'm one of the guys that set him up on the wing.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> That's but,
2: remarkable. <laughs> who was it? She kept on calling.
3: Huh? We think, we think, and, we, and I asked Miss Dore that one day. We were long after he had died, and she wouldn't tell me. But we think it was Big Jim Eastland, who was the senior senator. Whoever it was, they had enough power within the FAA that within the next day they answered back to her. Yeah. As to what they would do, and Big Jim Eastland was from Ruleville, Mississippi, which is very, very close to Marigold. Yeah. And uh, but that's she. She still wouldn't answer the question. Um, some things remain a secret forever in Mississippi, and it's just best not to ask.
1: You know, all you pilots are crazy.
3: For the most part. Yeah.
1: I've kn- I've known so many over my lifetime. And I, I, it, it just sticks in my brain. You well... you got to be out of your mind.
3: I, I mean, I was three years old, and my dad moves me to Seward Air Force Base, and from day one, all you heard were airplanes flying and flying over your house. And then when my mom and dad moved to Riverview, the uh, landing pattern was right over our house. So even after we moved to Riverview, still had airplanes over the house. They so, still
2: fly today, Truman.
3: So that was one of my things is... When I get old enough, I'm going to learn how to fly. My dad's neighbor, who lived across the street from us, he had started flight training in World War II, and then they had enough pilots, and they sent him to air traffic control. He bought a 172, and he knew that I wanted to fly. Who was that? So bad, Joe Mills. And uh, he basically taught me how to fly. And then we went to Murfreesboro Airport, and Clayton Sullivan, who died a few years ago, a good friend of mine, turns out, I was his first student, and he was—I I was his first student, and he was my first real instructor. And then Clayton and I worked for the same airline for many years. Um, but uh, Ask anyway. him his most
2: famous person he ever flew with.
3: Well, in 2001, we have an Aeronaut Champ built in 1946 in Middletown, Ohio, not far from where we live. And I totally restored it. Donna did a lot of the work, also. And then a photographer friend of mine, Dan Patterson, who's done about 30 or 40 aviation coffee table books, Mm -hmm. uh, called me and said, can I use your airplane? I need to take a picture, and I need it for a backdrop. I said, sure. And uh, he said, "I said, where do I need to be? And he told me, and so we went over there that morning. And I said, what are we doing, Dan? Who, Who are we taking a picture of? And he says, well, it's Neil Armstrong. And pretty soon, Neil walks up. Drives up and comes over to where I'm standing by the airplane, and he sticks his hand out and says, Good morning, I'm Neil. And that
1: was one small handshake.
3: Yeah, one small handshake. And yeah. what was really odd, as he's standing there, it was one of those early June mornings, clear blue sky, and over his shoulder was the moon.
2: Uh-uh. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't know
3: that. And you will hear people in Ohio, because he lived there from then on. They will tell you, Oh, no, he was stuck up. He was this. No. The Neil Armstrong that we met that day was this nice of a low-key individual. And to tell you the truth, I think he was as proud or maybe even more proud of the fact that he was a professor at the University of Cincinnati. Wow. Uh, But that's what he went on to do after NASA. What
1: what was his uh, subject?
3: Engineering. He taught engineering. And as we were standing there that morning, somebody said, you know, the thank you for your service thing. And uh, he said, folks, wait a second. He said, first off, there was nothing special about me going to the moon. It was just my time to go. And we were all assigned flights. And actually, my flight got moved up for two reasons. One, we advanced the program sooner than we thought we would. The other one was that President Johnson or Kennedy had said, you know, a man on the moon in this decade. Well, we were running out of the decade. So he said, so where I was supposed to go up and circle the moon, they went, you're landing. So, anyway,
1: That was a preset of the landing?
3: They moved, the landing was supposed to be in another mission or two later. Yeah. But they needed to move it up because the program had proved out successful Mm -hmm. and the fact of Kennedy's statement.
2: Apollo 8, 9, and 10 circled the moon. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So, there was not a need to circle the moon again, now we need to land. And he said... So there was nothing special about that. He said, any one of the other guys could have done what I did. It's just that I went first. I was the first guy. And uh, he said, but on top of all that, folks, that's what I did for a living. It was my job. He said, if there's any glory to all of this, it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to NASA and the U.S. government that funded it. He said, that's who should get the glory, not any one of us. But, no, he's a nice guy. So, anyway, I'm standing there, and as a courtesy, I say to him, would you care to fly the airplane, which is the s- same type airplane that he had soloed in at a younger time, mm-hmm. about 16 years of age. And I thought he'd say, no, I'm Neil Armstrong. I've got a thousand other things important to do these days. And he looks at me, and he goes, of course I want to fly.
1: <laughs> yeah, y'all are all crazy.
3: And I said, well, let's get this picture taken. And I said, so Dan takes the picture. And I said, do you mind if I have my picture taken with you? No, come over here. So we're standing in front of the airplane. We have our picture taken. So we get him in the front seat of the airplane. And we get the engine started. And it's a hot June morning, short runway, long grass, and a fence on the end. And I said, have a good flight. And he goes, no, 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 no. You're going with me. And I go, oh, no, I'm not. Because it's a small airplane. It's not a real high-performance airplane, and I knew it would take every bit of that runway to get off that morning with the both of us in there. And in the thought of my mind, it comes, and I go, I don't want to be Fred Noonan, who was Amelia Earhart's navigator.
1: Oh, gosh, yeah.
3: I don't want to be in Britannic Encyclopedia and World Book and on CBS Evening News as the guy who restored the airplane and was with Neil Armstrong when he got killed off the end of this runway. And that's what I'm thinking. And I go, no, I'm not going. It's best you just go by yourself. And he goes, then I'm not going. And I go, okay, I'll go. What and, size uh, was he? Mm, about your size. Yeah. About
1: 205, well, well, 210. Well, well shaped. Yeah.
3: And I said, okay, I'll go.
1: He had to say that.
3: I said, I said, I'll go. But the thought had come to me before I said that of going, you know, this would be like sailing with Columbus. Wow. And
1: I can see how you'd feel. How there. can I turn
3: this opportunity down? So, anyway, we got up, and he told me about being a young pilot in Korea, and he told me about his favorite airplanes of all time. and um, F-86? No, it was actually a propeller airplane, the Bearcat from World War II that really never got into the war, Grumman Bearcat, Um, and he flew it as a test pilot in the Navy. Um, But just a very nice guy, and he had probably been 40 years since he had been in this type of airplane, and I'm telling you, he flew it just like he had gotten out that morning after doing 20 or 30 landings. Um, The way you watch a, a pilot if you're riding with somebody and you don't really know, do they really know what they're doing? You watch their hands. And if their hands go to the right places at the right time, they know what they're doing. And this guy's hands were at the right place. And his landings were perfect. And... uh, But just a, you know, low-key guy. But the fact that, yeah, I want to go fly in your airplane. You know, so after all of his fame and... The whole bit, and he has his own museum up in Wapakoneta, Ohio, right there on I-75. The guy still wants to go fly in the same kind of airplane he soloed in. So,
1: what is it that the a gift that a pilot has that makes them so much superior to the others? Just like the ones in NASA, of course, they 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 have great skills there, and you obviously have them flying in in the crop duster and things like that. What is the driving force for you guys?
3: I don't think any pilots have any greater skill than anybody else has. Um, NASCAR drivers you know know how to drive a NASCAR. A farmer knows how to keep a straight row on a tractor. It's more what you like to do. And if yeah. you love to do something, Thomas loves what he does, so he digs deep in it. The other piece that he loves is the baseball, so he digs deep in it. What so What does I think, Thomas do? What does Thomas do? When he's not at the funeral home working, I think he's got his nose in a history book or he's on searching on the Internet. or, You know, the story I tell about him when I talk to people is he's out in Las Vegas and for $20 you can give that to Pete Rose and he'll sign your autograph and you yeah. get to ask him one question. And Pete signs his autograph and looks at him and says, Okay, what's your question? Which... Most people say the question that he hates to hear, do you think you'll ever get in the Hall of Fame? Yeah. And Thomas looks at him and says, who's the baseball player that should have been famous that never was? And Pete stops and goes, now that is a good question. And he thinks about it, yeah. and he gives Thomas a name, and then Thomas rattles off this guy's career. And Pete Rose looks at him and goes, I'm talking the 1950s. You shouldn't even know who I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So then he gets to sit there with Pete for another
1: hour and a half. So he loved you after that. Yeah. He respected you. And Pete's, twice. Pete's yeah. son
3: was standing there, and Pete's son told Thomas, my dad likes talking to you. Yeah. yeah,
1: That is pretty special. And and that's when you changed your mind, and then you were saying, yeah, he should be in the it, Hall of Fame. It helped.
3: Yeah, okay. But it I helped. think anybody in whatever career field they're in, if they love what they do, and for me, I like being in the air, looking down on the green grass. That's what I like to do. And we just spent two weeks doing it. Anybody that loves what they do, they will dig into it, and they will become more proficient. And uh, I, I I think that's what it is. But, you know, are there any special talents? No, I don't think so. You
1: know, I really believe there is, though. Uh course like like I tell you you know you, you guys are 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 different than other people and I've flown with a, a number of them over the years and I've seen some who I didn't really think they belonged in the air at all there are and some and then you have others who just uh, you have all the respect in the world
3: there are some there are some that I don't want to fly with and then there's some that if they're flying I'll go over here and take a nap I mean yeah. I'm totally, totally comfortable. It's the same driving a car. I can typically get in a car with somebody and drive down the road, and I can tell you whether or not they would be a good pilot. Uh, It's a lot of the same skill and a lot of the same traits.
1: Would I be a good pilot?
3: You would be an aggressive pilot. Yeah, he makes his mom nervous. Makes me a little bit nervous, too.
1: Have you got a pilot's license? No.
3: Well, Well, how
1: have you been flying, then?
3: Thomas has been flying since he was...
1: But your dad. Actually, you're, you're actually. Actually, them.
3: Thomas. <laughs> Thomas was two weeks old, and we took him to the Dayton Air Show, and there came a huge thunderstorm, and they had to evacuate everybody from the from the air show, and we went back in the hangar where I worked, and uh, probably not the best place in the world to have a two-week-old old kid. I remember that
2: hanger. That's what happened to you. Not two weeks old, but later on, when I was probably four or five.
3: But I told you we'd touch on Mickey Mantle, because I know you always like to talk about Mickey Mantle. So we were just down in Texas for five days. We were with a good friend of ours, Doug Jaffe. Mm -hmm. Doug Jaffe's dad, uh, Morris Sr., was Lyndon Johnson's business partner, one of Lyndon's business partners in Texas. And Doug grew up around Lyndon Johnson, and as a as a young kid, he would get on this trolley that circled Austin with his dad and Lyndon, and Lyndon, as a senator, would go to the back, and may have been vice president, but about that time, Doug was about 10 years old, and Doug would go to the back, Or excuse me, his dad and Lyndon Johnson would go to the back of the trolley and they would discuss business, and they would give Doug a handful of quarters. And every time the fare came up, he would put it in the machine. Mm-hmm. And the reason they went back there to the back is he was determined that Edgar Hoover was uh, wiretapping him. And it was the one place that he was certain that they could go, that, that uh, there was no way that he could listen in on their conversation. But anyway, so Mickey Mantle, in the early 50s, couldn't live off of his baseball salary which I think Doug said was 60000 a year that he made early in his career. And so one of Doug's dad's fathers says, hey, you got a lot going on. Why don't you give Mickey a job? He needs a job during the offseason. So he did. He hired him. But he didn't really have anything special for him to do. So instead, he had him drive Doug to school and back every day. He even had a chauffeur's cap made for him, and it said on the front of it, Mickey.
2: <laughs> I can't believe Mickey would wear it.
3: He said Mickey was actually great guy until he started later in the evening having a drink. He said, but up until that point, he said when the first time he drove me to school and the guy saw me pull up, and I think it might have been a private school, they kind of look and they go, that guy looks like Mickey Mantle. And Doug says, yeah, his name's Mickey. Doug wasn't a sports guy. He didn't know who Mickey Mantle was.
1: Wow, <laughs> he's the only man in America that didn't. Well, he was like, you know what? Late 50s, early
3: 60s. It was, yeah. So, and Doug was I mean, seven, eight years old. Well,
1: he'd, he, Mickey had been in long enough for everybody to know. I was but, gonna but, say, in his prime time, 51 but and 52. Doug when said, he "Got started." You know,
3: I just didn't follow baseball. That wasn't, wow. and so all the guys in school go, "That's Mickey Mantle," and he goes, "Okay." <laughs> Well, anyway, so Mickey started coming to school early to pick him up, and he would play pitch with him, Wow, or you know uh throw some balls to him, you know they all got to know Mickey Man well later in life, even at the salary Doug's dad was paying him, and um
2: he's making a hundred thousand dollars the end of his career,
3: but this is still 56, this is in the and he's he knew him up until the you know close to he died but yeah. Still, he's in baseball, and he still kind of runs short of money, and Doug's dad would loan him money that he probably knew he would never get repaid. It was more like a gift, but Mickey would always sign a promissory note. Wow. And so that today, they have stacks of promissory notes signed by Mickey Mantle, and Doug's dad, before he died, told Doug, so whatever you do, don't you ever try to cash any of those in, and don't let him. You know, out of sight.
2: You think he donate one to McCall, McCall? Well, I don't know, he might.
3: But the other thing Mickey did um, he
1: can give me the worst one. They would be they which, would have been worth more than anything. Which which baseball That's right.
3: is it that the fan gave it back to him?
1: It was the
2: baseball Mickey hit that tied Mickey with Lou Gehrig for the most home runs as a New York Yankee.
3: Yeah. So when he came he back
2: tied or beat the record.
3: Yeah. When he came back he gave, or he gave right? Doug and his brother the baseball.
2: Wow. And they still have it.
3: And you know what they did with it? uh uh-uh. They played baseball.
2: Never mind. They don't have it. <laughs> I thought they still no, have
3: it. No. They do have it. They do have but it. But they just almost wore off the signature and whatever it says. They didn't wear it quietly off. So they did take it to an authenticator. And today, yes, it's in a case along with the other Mickey Mouse stuff. But this famous baseball, when they came back, well, we'll play baseball. And they played pitch and whatever with it. But uh, yeah,
1: that just doesn't even seem right.
3: So when there was the company called Mickey Mantle Kitchens, it right?
2: Was, it was Country Kitchen. Country Mickey Mantle. Country cooking.
3: Yeah, he had a. There was a whole chain of restaurants, uh-huh. and they started in New York City, and it was a great success because Mickey would sign, sit in there, and sign autographs. Coon and that was, had him that way. And that was. Uh, Doug's dad, his hmm. his dad owned the business, owned that restaurant. So, I asked Doug one day because Thomas says, you know, I'd like to have one of those plates from that restaurant. And I asked Doug, I said, Doug, I said, after it closed, what you guys do with all the china wear and all? He said, I have no idea. It's probably either thrown away in a dump or it's in a warehouse in a box somewhere. He said, I have no idea. I said, well, if you ever find one or come across it, I said, Thomas wants one for his collection. 2 days later <laughs> we walk into an antique store over by Greenville Mississippi or Leland Mississippi where Jim Hanson who did Kermit the Frog that's where he was born
2: <laughs>
3: anyway we walk in there <laughs> and she goes over to a bunch of kids china and there's a plate from Mickey Mantle home home country kitchen or something wow and and the specialty of the of the restaurant was Mickey Mantle's wife's cornbread.
2: Maryland's cornbread.
3: But they yeah. never could duplicate it on a commercial. They got close, but they never could make it just that way.
1: That sounds like what goes on here. Your mama you. or your grandmama or somebody, they're the only ones that can make that particular uh, type of recipe. Well, it's unbelievable.
3: Right. We have found a, a restaurant in uh, Leland, Mississippi, which is close to Cleveland, which is really close to about 100 miles to Memphis. That's how kind of remote we are, in the middle of the Mississippi Delta. And the Catfish Cabin does have the okra the way my gran- my grandmother and mother made it. That is the closest I've ever had to it. But nobody has got my mother or grandmother's cornbread yet. Yeah. Now, Donna can get close, but can't get can't get there. Now... Uh, as a kid helps. As a kid, Gerald Lee and uh, <clears throat> all the Lees lived behind my mom and dad's house. And Miss Lee, huh? Snooks Lee was her husband. Karen Karen Lee uh, grew up with my sister. Braden, Bill Braden, Gerald, did. Bill. Yeah. Far the off. whole the whole Lee family. <clears throat>
2: you come to Smyrna and check a tree and the lee falls out. So.
3: Jim Taylor. <laughs> Jimmy Taylor, who's from Murfreesboro and was admiral in the Navy. Well, he's
1: in between Murfreesboro and Smurf. Right. Well,
3: anyway, Jimmy married one of the twins. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. Special lady.
3: Yeah. Miss Lee, we would be out in the yard playing, and she would come out after she made cornbread, and she would come out and give us pieces out in the yard. And I'm telling you, I would have to challenge her and my mom's cornbread for the best. But she would put a little bit of sugar in her cornbread. Anyway, of course, I grew up around Miss Lee, and the last time I saw her, every afternoon, she would go for a walk around Riverview, and we pulled in coming back from Ohio, and I saw her, and so I pulled up and said hi to her, and she looked at me, and she had no idea who I was. Yeah. No idea. Uh um,
1: she, she is a special lady. She, yeah. 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 And, and, and Jimmy's a special man, of course. Being a rear admiral and still have, uh, communications with the Pentagon, that's that's really special. Yeah. And what he did with uh, uh, the training for, to, for the pilots is unbelievable. Well,
3: well, a guy that I used to fly with, Hank Winter, who lived here in Murfreesboro, and, and I just heard the other day, Hank has since died. I lost contact with Hank, but he was a World War II veteran. Later in Navy life, he commanded a squadron that Jimmy was an incident. Well, Fast forward many, many years later, maybe 10 years ago. I knew that, and I'm still in touch with Hank, and I said, Hank, I'm going to be out at Smyrna Airport, Stones River, on Saturday morning at this time. I told Jimmy I'm going to be out at Stones River, and I brought the two together. Then neither one expected the other one to be there. Yeah. But Jimmy had been in Hank's squadron as a young man. Now Jimmy's retired admiral, Hank, the junior and rank retired as a captain. And that morning, as they were in the hangar, they were out skippering each other. Each was calling the other one skipper. And Hank was calling Jimmy skipper because he's senior as an admiral. But Jimmy's calling Hank skipper because he was, Hank. Uh, Hank was his skipper during the navy. It was just kind of, it was kind of funny. But, All
1: those unique talents and knowledge, and yet they still like to be around us average people. Isn't that something? I'm telling you what. Yeah. yeah I mean, we, we, they're, 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 there's a like certain. There's that magnet Well, that
3: it is. It, over life, you have to acquire a certain sense of toleration, you know.
1: So you're tolerating <laughs> me right now, David. <laughs> well, that's okay. No, I'm just joking.
3: I'm taking the lead on your comment. So.
1: He is right, though. Yeah. No.
3: No, we enjoy. I mean, right about hey, what? Hey,
2: no, I mean just in life, you do have to tolerate certain things. And, oh, you, hey, you,
3: you do, but let you me,
1: never put yourself uh, above someone. Let, let me, person. let me, let me
3: tell you something. Saturday night, we're down in Texas, and we go to Doug's friends invite us over their house to see the fireworks. So we walk in there. The only two people we know are Doug and his wife Nikki, and Michael and Valerie, whose house we had met the night before at dinner, but we. Second meeting. Everybody else is a total stranger. Mm-hmm. Donna sits outside on the patio with all of them. When the evening's over, they all come in, and, and one in particular, a guy named Buddy, he says, I hope you do know you out punt, you, ha, you, you punted outside your coverage, I think is what he said, talking about Donna. She goes out and makes friends with all of them. So, yeah. so, so I think that's where Thomas, uh, his ability down to funeral home, He never meets anyone that's a stranger. Donna never meets anyone that's a stranger. I just tag along. That's all it is. I just happen to remember stuff.
2: Sometimes I want to tag along. Sometimes
1: I don't want to talk. Well, I can tell you right now, you have a a great bedside manner because you can't wait. You've told me this three or four times. You can't wait till I pass on so that you can get me all fixed up and ready. Uh, for whatever funeral arrangements they are at the time, which I, I, am uh, I don't know how to take you sometime long from now. Yeah. The bedside with Truman
2: Jones has to come first.
1: Yeah.
3: (laughs) No, you know, seriously, if you have that attitude of I'm going to talk to this person, but not that person, you might just miss out on some of the best people you ever met in life. Yes. You know, so you got, you got to talk to everybody.
1: And, and and everybody is special.
3: Everybody's special. Everybody's yeah. got something special. Everybody's got a tail to tail Yeah, that's true.
2: I treat my job like David Letterman and Johnny Carson's.
3: Well, so you know what I mean. We're down at we're down at Texas, and we're at a thing called Ford Rodeo, R-O-A-D-E-O. And if you go down to the Ford dealer today and you put money down on a Ford new Ford Bronco, mm-hmm. you can go to Texas. And for a day and a half, they will put you in a class, and you drive Ford's Bronco, and they show you everything that you ever want to know about a Bronco. Mm -hmm. And over this course of eight miles, on our friend Doug Jaffe's ranch, Ford built eight miles of special trails. Anyway, so a day or two later, we're talking to Doug, and we said, yeah, we talked to this guy, we talked to this guy. And his wife, Nikki, says, how do you all know all of this? We live here, and you guys are telling us stuff that we didn't know. I said, because we went out and talked to people. And if you go and talk to people, they'll tell you stuff. They will.
2: 95% of the time.
1: And a lot of times, they're like right next to you. Yeah. You know that I guarantee you 80% of the people that live in this county now don't know their neighbor.
3: Oh, I agree. And, oh, and I, at one time, I knew that, that, about everybody in that, the county. That, yeah, when we were growing up, I could tell you in Riverview, every house who lived there, who was the dad? Who was the mom? Who were the kids? What did dad do? You know, I mean, but yeah, that's
2: too much growth at one time. I think's kind of prevented that, maybe.
3: Yeah, we were out on eight forty yesterday. We came in all five forty and came around to Murfreesboro, and I'm sitting there looking at all of these trees and these hills, and I'm thinking, what's this going to look like in twenty five years? And yeah. sure enough, we go around. Here's a new subdivision, and you can tell where all the trees are now gone. Yeah.
1: That's sad.
3: Yeah. This whole, but I will tell you this also, the town that I grew up in and before we moved here, Obine. On Saturday afternoon in Obine, which is a farming community, mm-hmm. you couldn't hardly walk down the middle of the street. Everybody was in town. Yeah. And we had the grocery stores, the Five and Dime, clothing stores, you know, everything on Front Street and the town really doesn't that part of town doesn't exist anymore as the buildings burnt they just never rebuilt them so if you don't grow you die you yeah. can't you can't have it you can't stay the same yeah you either die off or you grow and that that's just the way it is and you go down to Mississippi all these little towns that were the same way that Saturday night the towns were packed some of them aren't even there anymore yeah now there might be a few houses but the town itself is not there. So.
1: Well, you know, the coronavirus, people like me, I go crazy. I cannot stand to be in a house away from everybody. I've got to be around people. And, and the, it, it's the most fascinating thing in the world that you can do to get to know other people and, and, and their story, you might say. And and uh, this this community here is still kind of got some of the old stuff. I know that we, when I was a kid, we would have uh, we we'd be at one of the schools like Mitchell Nelson at night late, and a, and a little old man would come out and play movies for us. They're 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 still doing that. Which if you take the time and look, there's still a lot of special things going on in this community that we were able to uh, find so fascinating back in those times. And it's still here. And the people, uh, everybody's got their own qualities and their own special talents. And um, we just need to look a little bit closer sometimes in what we do. Mm -hmm. But I'm one of these people, I can't stand to be away from them. (laughs) And it just, I, I don't care whether it's, it's something, that, a disease that I'm going to die from. I still want to get out and be with them. Sure. I mean, it, it, it made such a impact, a negative impact on our country and, and the way that everybody treated it.
2: You feel better getting out. Yeah. Mentally and physically, too.
1: Yeah. And then you look back at all these heroes over the years, like all those pilots that flew uh, those suicide missions and, and, and all the people that were... Uh, in the South Pacific, Vietnam, uh, in, in North and South Korea, uh, they were looking at something that would take them out at any minute. And here we are just crying about this and that. It just, it bothers me.
3: Yeah. Um, I might be getting a little out of, on the edge here, but somebody had said. That's where you
1: belong. We all.
3: Some, belong somebody had said, you know. <laughs> Uh, the Blue Angel pilot was the first guy that ever died at Smyrna Airport military pilot. That is so wrong. When I was a kid, Donna was a kid, 1963, a C-130, everybody perished right on the airfield wow. on takeoff. Uh-huh. Uh, I remember hearing the boom and seeing the smoke.
1: What a great aircraft.
3: During wow. World War II, we had all kinds of people <laughs> that got killed in training missions in this area. Seward Air Force Base is named for Alan Stewart, Stewart, who died in the Pacific during World War II. He was from Nashville. And then a fellow that was in here before we started, and I was telling about Northern Field down in Tullahoma, which was uh, an outer field for Smyrna during the training days. Northern Field was also named for a pilot from Nashville who was killed during World War II. And then over the 4th of July, I'm sitting there thinking about, you know, these people that think they got problems. And I'm thinking about this guy crawling down that rope ladder into a landing craft on June 6, 1944, headed into the beach. He's on the first wave. Well, he looks around. There's 95% of us will be dead in about the next 30 minutes. That's just the reality of it. Nobody has an idea how good they have it. compared to what people have gone out and done to make this world the way it is, whether you're white, black, Chinese, Mexican, or whatever you are that live in this country. Those are the people that created a foundation. And, yes, there's a lot of things that are wrong that need to be fixed, but the foundation is still pretty good, and we all need to thank those people who created that foundation. Going back to Valley Forge during the Revolutionary War, during the winter, Dying of frostbite and freezing, and you know, through Korea, through World War One over in France, uh, the Civil War. Depending on what side you're on, you know, um, both sides believed in what they were doing, and uh, yeah, it's fortunate that the Northern side won. I don't know what this country would be like if it was divided. I might be, a I might have upset some people saying that, but.
1: No, just 95% of the yeah. people live in
3: Rutherford it it, it it made us a great country. Yeah. It made us a great country.
1: I love Dixie, but his truth
2: was marching on.
3: It, it made so, us what, a great what did country. did you
2: say, Thomas? I <laughs> said I love Dixie, but his truth was marching on.
3: <laughs> but if we had remained a split country. And oh, you can't do that. If we had remained a split country. And remember this, too. We're west up. of the Mississippi hadn't really been settled yet. And now who's to say that could have ended up, you know, as another country in itself? You know, the United States is just... I've been a lot of places in the world. I've They're,
1: they're going to blame me for going over. You hear the music, don't you? <laughs>
3: I don't hear it. But, <laughs> but I'm just telling you, I've been... Hey, David. All over the say, world. Say bye. <laughs> I just want to say bye, but I'm going to tell you, of all the places I've been in the world and as many, this is the best.
1: Yes, it is. Thank you very much. I thoroughly enjoyed uh, the David Booker show today. Yeah.
3: Well, I just barely got started, so if you need me to come back, just let me know.
1: All right, we'll see you guys.